0: Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.
1: Hi, everyone, and Happy New Year. I wanted to start this episode with a little bit of context. For the next few weeks, I'll be releasing old episodes that pertain specifically to motherhood, because I myself just had a new baby, and so it's kind of the headspace I'm in. Plus, I'm technically on maternity leave until the beginning of March. This episode... Mary Kelly's postpartum document was originally released in February 2021 when I was in a very different place than I am today. I wasn't yet pregnant with my second child and I was on the outside looking in at an experience that I'm actually right smack in the middle of right now and so it's kind of a trip to listen to it again. But this episode is also very much about the pandemic which has also gone through its own evolution in the last year Bringing us back, at least today, as I record this, to a place that doesn't feel emotionally all that different from a year ago, even though we've come so far. But today, it's still a strange, untethered, endless, lonely winter. Tomorrow, like all mothers know and comfort ourselves with, it will be something else. So please, today, stay safe out there, and I'll see you on the other side. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai.
0: Oh, yes, it was very funny in the paper. It said um, they had a picture of me. I don't know how they got it. And under it, it said, It's art because I say so. <laughs> because there was the, you know, the problem for perhaps some of the critics who were involved in conceptual art at the time as they'd say, well, you know, I like that theory, that structure, but why do you have to have that stuff <laughs> in there? And on the other hand, the women would say, oh, I can, I can relate to that, but what do you have to, why the theory, why that? So it seemed to, in a sense, be three interlocking circles, (laughs) you know, one where you would have conceptual artists, you would have women in the movement, right? And you would have mothers. And there would be one point in the middle where very few people could understand exactly where this was pointed. And when this work was first shown in the context of conceptual art, this is before disposable nappies, (laughs) before disposable diapers. They had something which was like a liner that you put in a cloth diaper. And it's really that, the stain on that liner that I kind of used as the evidence of how well I was doing (laughs) with the feeding. (laughs) And there was actually no other way (laughs) to go about this.
1: Episode 51, Mary Kelly's Postpartum Document from 1973 to 79. Early on in the pandemic, I was on the phone with my mom. And in the course of our conversation, I had that experience that everyone has had at least a couple times since last March. The realization that I couldn't tell what day of the week it was. I screwed up my brain and tried to find some purchase, but it just wouldn't come to me. We all know how, in the before times, each day of the week had its own unique, imperceptible quality to it. Monday has fresh momentum, Wednesdays are productive but kind of bloodless, Thursdays have the promise of Fridays, Sundays kind of feel like the end of the summer. And now all of that was replaced with a smooth, blank wall. We knew on some rational level that the pandemic would mean we were losing hugs and restaurant meals, but we didn't consider this kind of loss, the untethering of time itself. My mom responded with a chuckle. I heard a good one the other day, she said. We used to have days of the week. Now every day is Blur's Day. And I'll give it to her, it was a good one. And not just because it rings so true for the pandemic, and it's something that we can all understand, but because that joke is an old chestnut on loan from a very specific demographic, one that I'd also been a part of since the summer before. Because I'd been living in months of blurs days by the time the pandemic hit, because I was the mother of a freshly born baby. I had been living the cottony haze as hours bled into hours, days into nights, into days into nights. Babies aren't born with a circadian rhythm, they need to develop them. And that means that as a new parent, you lose yours. 3 a.m., 3 p.m., sunlight, moonlight, it's all the same. The previous decade of my life had been structured by a nine to five, the distinct borders between weeknights and weekends, and the 7.51 train to get to work on time and beating the 11 a.m. grocery store rush on Sundays. And now all of that, I mean truly all of it, my life, my normal, fell away, dissolved, disappeared. Structure itself was meaningless in the sleepless, broken hours spent staring into the face of this little squeaking being who stared back in equal wonder. Our most urgent needs, food going in, food coming out, and the crashing waves of sleep became our only indication that time was actually passing. How can I even describe those first days and weeks of my son's life? Someone once told me that it's impossible to actually conjure the memory of pain. And when I think back on that time, I realize that I can't actually conjure the fatigue. Only the small, poignant details. The warm light of the bedside lamp in the middle of the night. Staring at his impossibly tiny, yet wholly complete fingers. The hollow little squelchy suck as he nursed. I remember how simple it was to feed him, and yet so stressful to feed me. How attempting to follow recipes brought me to frustrated tears. How I would order food to pick up just as a reason to leave the house. And more than anything, I remember how separate I felt from the world, on a solitary rocket ship to the moon. Life became a series of contradictions. Everything was both itself and its total opposite, just depending on the hour. I remember feeling giddy and bursting with love. I remember feeling wrung out and desperate. My rocket ship was perfectly cozy and fit to our scale and utterly claustrophobic. I had nestled in my arms, the exact person who made me feel whole, and I was really lonely. I was on this thrilling, far-flung adventure while sitting in the same spot on my couch, unmoving sometimes for hours, wearing the same clothes, steeped in my own gentle stink. The existential silence of outer space guided entirely by sounds. Whimpers, snorts, and those deep, shuddery sighs. But for all its nebulous haze, the fact is that I can revisit the nuts and bolts of those days any old time I want to. Because no sooner had this little body been evacuated from my own, no sooner had I joined the celestial ranks of our species, I was handed a hospital chart to fill out. Which breast, how long, what time, how many ounces? As soon as he would wake up, all thrashy and sniffy, I was to pop him on my nipple and start a timer. Countless doctors and nurses then checked up on it, made sure I was filling it out, and a student that I was, of course, I wanted to impress them. But it wasn't just for them. I needed it. I needed something, anything, that would give me back some control. This is not a shock to anyone who really knows me. When I first told my sister I was pregnant, she shook her head and smiled, not unkindly, about just how much control a control freak like me was going to have to accept losing. Because it's true, control is an exceedingly short supply from the moment of conception, from which hormones are released to grow his spleen, to how long the labor takes, to how much milk you produce, to when he starts to talk but you'd never know it from the app store. There are infinite ways to maintain the illusion of control, to process all of this unknown with a tap. I was able to track my ovulation to the day. I know the exact moment of conception. As soon as I found out I was pregnant, I was able to check in weekly on what literal size the fruit growing in my womb was. A grape at nine weeks, a grapefruit at 23. With the first labor spasm, I was searching for apps to time the length between contractions, to tell me when it was going to happen, and I think, I hoped, what was going to happen. Because even though my entire job that day was to give up control and just get out of my body's way so it could do the primary act that it was built to do, the data is still there, structuring the experience in bits and bytes making me feel like it could have been structured at all. And whether or not this kind of neurotic charting creates more stress on a larger level, I know that it comforted me in the moment. It gave me back a sense of control. And it made me understand, maybe it was the only thing that could make me understand, on a molecular level, what the artist Mary Kelly was all about. Because if we're being honest, when I was introduced to the work of Mary Kelly in a college art history course, I rolled my eyes. Postpartum Document is her most famous work. It's the one that puts her in college survey art history courses, usually lumped together with other second wave feminist artists. And if you're familiar with many of those artists, Marina Abramovic, Carolee Schneeman, Judy Chicago, and others who we've looked at in the past, then you, like I was, would be predisposed to dismiss Kelly. Come on, girl, you would say with all the inflated confidence of a co-ed. You're working alongside women artists who pour their souls into reclaiming their women bodies. These are artists breaking out of the gaze or subsuming it or subverting it. And here you are obsessively tracking the birth of your son because this is what postpartum document is on its face. A series of six sections mounted as a seemingly endless series of individually framed works, essays, images, and footnotes, documenting every inch of her baby's development until he's five years old. His feedings, his diaper changes down to the poop-stained cloth liners, his babbles, his scribbles, every little token gifted by his chubby toddler hand, all charted and described with a precision that I, at the time, could only have described as psychotic. And worse, unfeminist. To devote your freshly liberated female body to another person, and to devote your artistic life to tracking something that only the mother of that specific baby could ever possibly be interested in, well, it felt retrograde and trivial. I mean, Schneeman was painting canvases with her own goddamn vagina, Mary Kelly. All you did was become a mom. And worse, the kind of insufferable mom who shows us the whole photo burst when one would have more than sufficed. Okay, Uh, both college-age Tamar and everyone else, let's sit with this for a moment, shall we? Specifically, this idea that all a woman did, that all our moms did, was become a mom. That making and caring for new life is so common that we stop seeing it for the tremendously profound thing that it is. And this seeps in when you become a mom, because you start to question how can something be so transcendently life-altering in theory, and yet so mundane in practice? I was thinking about that this morning, as my son sat calmly on my lap, sucking down a bottle. This was the leap off the side of the world, this small innocuous body with the sweet smelling curls, swinging his little pajama legs. This is my new greatest joy, seriously watching him happily shake a container of cupcake sprinkles. But it is. And parenting exists in these contrasts, at once everything and nothing obvious and obliterating. But unlike all the other existential paradigm shifts that human beings experience, like death or falling in love, parenting is treated differently. It's treated like a choice. We choose to take the leap. We choose to undergo the Copernican revolution in our own lives to no longer be the center of our own universes. And it stands to reason that if something was a choice, then there's a clear metric for determining if it was the correct choice, or if it's being done correctly or incorrectly. That it's indeed possible, as all the mommy sites try to tell us it is, to rationally track motherhood. These contradictions, these metrics, The work, the leap, these are the issues that Postpartum Document tries to unpack. And it's the contradictions in particular that give the work its spine. Like with motherhood itself, Postpartum Document is both everything and its opposite. It's an attempt to view an exposed human heart through an objective filter. It's an anthropological project that elevates motherhood to an academic social science that can be understood through enough observation and dissection, through the authority of theoretical analysis. And it's a deeply ironic parody of such an approach, from the formal typewritten cataloging that's covered with crayon scribbles, to the pleasing Rorschach-like aesthetic of poop stains. And at its core, it's a comfort. A quiet tethering for a struggling new mom named Mary Kelly who is clearly trying to understand something that transcends our understanding, our language. To pin down feelings that can't ever be processed in real time, only exquisitely remembered with a whiff of baby shampoo. This attempt at objective rationalism is her own attempt to make sense of what cannot be made sense of and to feel a little less unhinged in the moment by manufacturing this anthropological framework around it. Measuring stains on diapers with mathematical precision, as she has described, helped to fend off the anxiety that she wasn't feeding him correctly. Deciphering his babbles, as only a mother can do, reinforced her own value, as only that mother. Quote, it was all evidence of how well I was doing, Kelly said. If you track his progress, she's telling herself, then you can track your own. And you can reassure yourself, as every mother must, that you're not fucking it all up. And we need to consider how postpartum documents' intrinsic contradictions met their historical moment. Images of mothers and children are perhaps the most primal pillar of visual culture, given the biblical references to the Madonna and Child. The genre essentially peaked in the 19th century with the tender French Impressionist paintings of Berthe Morisot and Mary Cassatt, who had been confined to their domestic settings by dint of their sex and class, and therefore painted what they had access to, that is, children. But these images had largely fallen out of favor by the middle of the 20th century, and certainly by the 1970s, when the artistic discourse of second wave feminism, as we've said, saw itself explicitly about liberation from the body, from the gaze, and especially from the home that is, from homemaking. So when Mary Kelly first began to show the series in 1976, Its perceived, quote-unquote, anti-feminist, quote-unquote, backsliding was laughed out of the room. Moreover, like with most newcomers to the work, all people could focus on were the diapers. After the Tate's Bricks come the dirty nappies, the headline of the London Evening Standard blared obnoxiously, as though the move from minimalism to motherhood was something to mourn. But little by little, the discourse deepened and textured and the work's revelatory nuances began to shine. Hiding elements of motherhood had become such a fixture of feminist art that to show them became the bravest thing a woman artist could do, and not as an idealized 19th-century love letter to domesticity, or as a 1970s bragging right of the woman having it all, but showing it off in all its invisibility, in the profundity of what is so easily dismissed. Many women artists in the 70s, as we looked at in the fiber art of episode 15, were also looking to explore what it meant to reclaim what had been derided as women's work, the typically unseen labor of simply being domestic, the exhaustion and the dignity, the creativity of the craft. And these diaper linings, so easy to mock at first glance, so easy to not take seriously, were unlike any account of motherhood that the art world had ever been exposed to, especially after those Gauzy impressionist paintings of mothers and children. Those stained diapers represented not only the relentless tedium of the work of motherhood, the strand of beads with no knot, as my mother-in-law says, but of the corporeal reality of motherhood, of the bodies themselves their functions and fluids and smells that moms, because they're moms, don't actually mind so much. And this larger plea to take the work seriously is reinforced and maybe satirized by Kelly's use of arcane theoretical frameworks. From the first section onwards, this little, fluff-headed baby is being cranked through the cogs of Lacanian and Freudian analysis, sexual compulsions and phallic associations, gendered labor, and the foundational aspects of adult socialization. It's a lot. She stamps onesies with Lacanian visualizations. She takes the not-exactly-unfounded eroticization of breastfeeding to a totally overreaching Freudian conclusion. And it becomes difficult to take this aspect of the work seriously, which is maybe her point. As any feminist artist will attest, art theory and philosophy in general have been unequivocally shaped by a patriarchy, by men. And maybe Kelly is revealing that using this methodological framework to explain objectively the relationship between a mother and her baby is just as absurd from a distance when they do it as it looks up close when she does it. That said, there is no question that the formal clinical language of this framework lends an academic authority to the subject matter. Not only does the endless cataloging and analysis draw awareness to the work itself, that is, the labor, but it methodically creates an empirical lens through which to view the sacred the profundity of the experience itself. It elevates these objects, the onesies and diaper liners and the Rosetta Stone of her son's scribbles. These objects that are so easily forsaken, so inevitably thrown away, become invaluable artifacts of human archaeology, a testament to the way that we as a human species develop, measuring out our humanity in plastic baby spoons. On a macro level, these objects are a way of articulating why we matter at all. And on a micro level, they also explain why, to our moms, those musty old receiving blankets are more valuable than diamonds. Because, again, it's the mother's perspective here that we really care about. She is the author of a text that is tracking her own evolution alongside her child's, documenting her own internal conversations alongside the conversations with her son. And in looking at those, we see this empirical framework kind of dissolve from objective to subjective, from anthropological to anxious, as the rocket ship slowly leaves the atmosphere. In every one of the six sections of the work— each tracking an overarching developmental stage that aligns with her son's age. Her observations are detached and pragmatic and then conclude with a sweeping, heartbreakingly vulnerable question about what all this amounts to. What have I done wrong, she asks, following the first section on feedings and fecal analysis, and echoing every mother who has ever stood vexed and tearful over her newborn's empty diaper. Why don't I understand, she asks, after the second section on speech development. The third section on markings and scribbles pivots self-consciously outward. Why is he like that? The fourth on transitional objects, what do you want? And onward to the final section, when he's five years old and now able to write the alphabet, which to her signifies the completion of the artwork. Her son is now capable of becoming the author of the text. And she, the mother, asks, What will I do? And this drives home maybe the most powerful aspect of the work. Loss. Separation. Both a mother from herself at first, and then the mother from her child having devoted herself so assiduously to her baby and then losing him, quite appropriately, to the natural terms of his own development. And this speaks to what is actually the most striking contradiction in the series, the idea that an experience so ephemeral can be recorded, captured in its tracks, placed beneath glass, able to be revisited. For all of the comfort, maybe, that this charting gave Kelly in real time, and for all of the larger societal elements that her art was tapping into, one also has to imagine that she was simply trying to hold on to moments as they were slipping away. Motherhood is rightly referred to as the longest, shortest time. Moments and phases that feel interminable actually go by in a flash. Maybe she was trying to capture the feeling of being caught in those moments. Or maybe she was recording them so that she could revisit them when she actually had the emotional wherewithal to, even though by then, they'd be long gone. I mean, that was certainly my hope. Because I also recorded everything. And it's not like I was thinking about Mary Kelly, or at least not explicitly, when I brought my microphone into my doctor's visits, or into my delivery room, or when I hold the voice memo app in front of my son's giggling face before he tries to grab my phone away. It wasn't an intentional artistic project, like, hey, I'm an audio producer, maybe I can get some good tape for a future project, but because it's why I'm an audio producer at all, Because I know that recreating a sense of time and space after a moment has passed is invaluable. There's not much that takes you back there like sounds do. Nothing else can so powerfully envelop you and recreate a lost moment. Especially a moment that's meant to be lost. (laughs) Dad, (laughs)
0: Dad, dad, dad? Dad,
1: did it for at least some of the same reasons that she did. You do this kind of thing in the moment because it makes the moment feel real when you can't trust your own headspace. You do it because the idea of a future in this impossibly untethered, relentless present is so absurd that you're almost daring time to pass for these recordings to hurry up and become nostalgic. You do it because you can't pay the attention in the moment that it deserves. Because the sacred is completely swallowed up by the mundane. Because there's too much to think about, too much to schedule. It's too new, and you're too tired. You do it because in these moments, there are no words. And I can't help but think about Kelly when I listen back to these now. Because what actually strikes me the most is hearing myself change. As a mom, doing it all for the first time, which I'll never do again. I'm struck by how comfortable I sound. How increasingly unselfconscious in my role. Even though I remember feeling like I was flailing and failing. I'm struck by how much these sound like tapes of my own mom with me. It's amazing how our voices are almost indistinguishable now. And maybe these recordings aren't interesting to anyone but me, or maybe him someday, but maybe they are. Maybe they make a new mom feel a little less alone. And though postpartum document and all my own recordings do speak to a kind of loss— They're also, ultimately, and with the much wider and wiser lens of experience, about gain. About stretching out your own surprisingly elastic life to make room for someone else's. And for more love than you ever thought possible. And you're not only making enough space to keep them alive, but all that extra wiggle room to help them thrive. Someone had to do that for you. And it was, in all likelihood, the most poignant experience of their life. So let's not think of this artwork as just about motherhood, or a mother, when it's really about everyone who has ever had one. In other words, it's about everyone. And so let's also stop rolling our eyes at Mary Kelly let's stop dismissing her as some obsessive mother, as just a mother. Let's instead think about the hard-earned wisdom that moms, and especially new moms, can teach us about this moment that we're all in right now, if we just look to them. Because we are all surviving a global pandemic, one day at a time. And I say this, of course, about those of us who are lucky enough to both be a mom if we want to be and lucky enough to have been able to stay home. But look, no matter what, it's hard. We have all just lost an entire year of normalcy to blurs days, and it feels like we're all hitting a wall. The darkness of this winter is beginning to close in on us, and even though we know there's a light at the end of the tunnel, it only makes this time of interminable stillness feel even more potent, even more oppressive. And new moms, they see you. And they're here to tell you, as only moms can, that you'll get through this. There's a new normal waiting on the other side with weekends and train schedules. And once we get there, because our adaptable lizard brains leave us no choice, we're going to forget how this felt. We won't be able to just conjure up this untethering from time what it really feels like when you don't know what day of the week it is. And because we forget, we need to actively try, really make a conscious effort to come away a little wiser with a little more empathy, a little more compassion for each other, for ourselves, and hopefully for all those new new moms who are, as we speak, sitting in their divot on the couch, staring at their babies simultaneously weightless and crushed and isolated from the very species they're perpetuating, maybe even more isolated than you are. We see you right back, moms. And maybe it took this pandemic to understand, maybe the only thing that could make us understand, on a molecular level, what you've been going through. And we're sorry that it took the mother of all reminders to get here. Special thanks to Evan Blanche, who deserves his own episode on fatherhood. My birth team of Kristen Perrin and Adrian Mathewitz, and all my other dear friends and family members who have joined the Stretch Mark Club in the last little while, both literally and metaphorically, and are hanging in there like champs. I'm counting down the days until I can bring Calvin over for a playdate. For more information, past episodes, and all the images, go to thelonelypalette.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at lonelypalette. On Instagram at the Lonely Palette, like us on Facebook, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and please, if you value this content and want more of it, become a sustaining patron at Patreon.com/LonelyPalette. And if you're on the lookout for a safe and highly enjoyable activity with your coworkers, book a virtual tour of art through the ages with the Lonely Palette over Zoom. Check out the slash virtual tours The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of story-driven, mind-expanding podcasts. And if you're in particular need for the kind of advice you can only get from a mom, then check out the most recent episode of The Briny, Matt Frasica's sound-rich Stories from the Sea about an internationally decorated marathon swimmer who combats her anxiety of the water following a shark scare when she was younger by continually reminding herself to stay focused and swim. You can find episodes at thebriny.net or at hubspokeaudio.org or wherever you get your podcasts.